You're tuned in to 90.7 FM, KALX Berkeley. I'm Andrew Saintsing, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where we speak to UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I'm joined by Rosalie Lawrence, the Department of Molecular and Cell Biology. Welcome to the show, Rosalie. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do here on campus? Yeah, I'm working in the Roberto Zoncu lab, where we're really interested in how cells in our body make decisions. And so the process that we, we study is actually the decision that every cell in our body makes of whether to grow or not to grow. And different cells in our body will make different decisions depending on where they are and uh, what the environmental conditions are. So some tissues in our body are constantly growing and dividing, and some cells in our body are actually very long-lived. And so it's un- important to kind of understand how this process is regulated, because when it's disrupted, this causes runaway cell growth, which is ca- a key characteristic of cancer and other diseases. So sort of me personally, what I study is understanding how the molecules within each of our cells are actually carrying out these decisions and how these processes can be tuned appropriately so that cells in our body are dividing when they should be and not dividing when they shouldn't be, as in the case of cancer. Okay, so you talked about cells and molecules making decisions. I mean, usually we think about things needing brains, right, to make decisions. So how are how is this happening? Yeah, so this is really fascinating to me, um, really thinking about how on the molecular scale or the cellular scale, the way decisions happen is actually protein molecules bind to one another. Um, so they're diffusing around in space. One protein molecule may recognize a specific shape of another protein molecule, bind to it, and then, for example, it may make a chemical modification, for example, phosphorylation, where it adds a phosphate uh, chemical moiety to another protein. And so really kind of bits of information, if we're thinking about maybe a thinking about cells making decisions, sort of maybe like an electric grid, um, are really encoded by protein-protein interactions. And a moiety, that's just like a chemical group. It means a a collection of atoms. So what kinds of molecules are leading the cells to make decisions? Like what kinds of molecules are you looking at? Yeah, so our lab actually studies one particular protein called the Uh, mechanistic target of rapamycin complex 1, which is kind of a mouthful. But this is one uh, protein that actually interacts with a lot of different downstream proteins. So we we call it a master regulator of the cell. So when this protein becomes activated, it then has the ability to turn on many different cellular programs that result in cell growth. So this is things like um, amino acid synthesis, lipid synthesis. So this one protein molecule acts as a master regulator that when activated can turn on a variety of different cell processes to ultimately result in cell growth. How does it work? Yeah, so the really fascinating discovery uh, that was made in this pathway about 10 years ago is actually that this protein becomes activated specifically when it gets recruited to a very particular location in the cell. So many of us probably learned about cellular organelles when we were in high school biology. So you may have learned about the mitochondria, the powerhouse powerhouse of the the cell. cell. Exactly. People remember that one. (laughs) Um, 
the organelle we're really interested in actually is called the lysosome. Do you remember anything about the lysosome? They're the stomachs of the cell, right? Yeah. So we all learned about the lysosome as maybe the stomach or maybe the trash can. That's right. You know, right, we, we right. don't really like that terminology, but we think of the lysosome as really the place in the cell where things are broken down, where you're digesting cellular components to bring them back to their building blocks. But the really interesting discovery is actually that the lysosome is not just a trash can. It's actually a signaling hub. It's the the place where it's sort of the control center of the cell, where actually this protein that I was mentioning, the mTORC1 protein, gets recruited to the lysosome. So it goes to the lysosome. And once it's at the lysosome, it can actually read out the status, the nutrient status of the cell. So because all of the components of the cell are broken down in the lysosome, that means that all the building blocks that are going to be used later for new building projects are all there. And so this protein becomes activated when it's physically recruited to the lysosome. And understanding that process of how it's actually recruited there is what I've been working on in my PhD. Do you have any information on that front to tell us? How does it how does it work? Or... Yeah. Uh, so I guess what what's been really fascinating about understanding this is that mTORC1 is recruited to the lysosome when there are nutrients present. So if the cell is in kind of a starved state, there's not a lot around, it's not a good time to grow, this molecule is kind of floating around in the cell, not on the lysosome. And then when these nutrients are present, it becomes recruited to the lysosome and begins saying, okay, we can wake up and start growing now and turning on all of these programs. What's really fascinating is that actually what I have have sort of studied is the fact that Rather than this protein just getting recruited to the lysosome and and staying there and saying, okay, we have nutrients, we're just going to grow forever now, Uh, we've turned the pathway on, all of our growth programs are on, actually this binding to the lysosome is very short-lived. And so the cell has sort of inbuilt this system to put a break on this growth program. So as soon as the molecule is recruited to the lysosome, it doesn't stick there very well. It's a very low affinity interaction. So it's constantly coming on and off. And that is a mechanism that the cell has to sort of protect against the possibility of having too much growth. So it means that the system is always having to receive a positive input to stay on rather than turning it on once and having it stay on forever. So the cell is programmed to always think that it's hungry and needs more, basically. Yeah, so if you had a system where if this molecule goes there once and stays there forever, then it would be like it's it always thinks that it's hungry, right? But because it's constantly falling off, it's always kinds to it always needs to receive a new input to say, "Yes, we're still hungry now. Yes, we're still hungry now" instead of just turning it on once and leaving it on. I see. I see. Wait, so actually just to clarify, wait, so the mTORC1 tells the cell that it has enough nutrients to grow? Right. So when there are nutrients in the cell, there are some other proteins that recruit mTORC1 to the lysosome where it becomes activated and turns on all of these uh, building processes. Right. And then, okay. So in a high-nutrient environment, the cell would recruit mTORC1 and grow. Mm-hmm. And by grow, do you mean just grow in size, or do you mean like grow and divide, produce more cells? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mTORC1 specifically is really about causing cells to grow in size. 
However, there are other pathways in the cell that activate division programs once the cells have reached a certain size. So really mTORC1 is causing cells to grow, which then generally causes them to, to divide in most cases. And by grow, you just mean like the area of the yeah, cell? Yeah, they're literally like the volume is increasing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you said that this uh, pathway is really important to diseases like cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how is that? Yeah, so this this protein molecule in this pathway is one of the most frequently mutated pathways in cancer. Um, And some of the work that I did was actually showing that there are specific mutations um, identified in cancer patients that actually cause mTORC1 to get stuck on the lysosome. So this was one way to kind of show that this process that's actively putting a break on the system and kicking mTORC1 off under normal conditions, when that is disrupted and you have these mutations that cause the system to stay always on the lysosome and always on, this uh, is, is often found in cancer patients and suggests that it's one way that the system can get misregulated. Although it's, it's important to realize that cancer is a very complex set of diseases and generally there are many different mutations that occur before cancer truly develops, but this is kind of one of the, one of the risk factors or one of the components of the disease. Have you uh, looked into some cancer treatments based around this? My the, the professor that I work with actually recently started a company that is interested in using small molecules to disrupt this interaction. So, you know, this is it's still a very exploratory startup company, but it's definitely being able to understand really physically how these decisions go down allows us to actually, with a lot of precision, design therapies to target the specific event that becomes misregulated. So in cancer, the there are a variety of things that are going on. But in this particular case, if this were involved in the cancer pathway, then the mTORC1 would be permanently bound to the lysosome and the, lysos- and the cell would think, okay, I'll just keep growing. But I mean, even if there's not enough nutrients for it to grow. Um, So does the cancer cell just kind of grow without nutrients available? I mean, Right, right. So this is is kind of the place where you can see how it's important for there to be uh, multiple different mutations happening at the same time. So, you know, in this case, you would definitely need to have some other mutation happening that is providing some nutrient source for the cell. Um, And that can happen by changing, for example, glucose metabolism, changing the way that our body stores nutrients so that there's more of it in the blood in a way that's circulating and available to the cancer cell rather than being, say, stored in a fatty tissue. So generally, you need to have multiple different mutations. So things like regulating how the, you know, the growth decision is, is regulated, regulating how nutrients are distributed so there's actually enough nutrients for growth. There's often mutations in um, the processes that allow cells to migrate because generally we, we call something cancerous once it's actually metastasized and the cell is moving to new places in the body. So, you know, cancer is really sort of death by a thousand cuts. There, there need to be, you know, many different things going wrong to really get to the point of cancer. I see. So how do you actually study this? What kind of organism, first of all, do you use? Yeah, I work with um, human tissue culture cells. So these are cells that were at one point isolated from a living person and can then uh, essentially grow indefinitely in test tubes. So these have actually, we call them, have been transformed. So they 
are are different from cells in our body and that some of these breaks on the system that prevent cell growth have been bypassed and so they'll sort of grow uh, indefinitely in culture. It's very useful to us to be able to grow them in the lab. So is everybody in the lab working on cells from the same person? We have actually uh, several different cell lines that we work on in the lab. But there are, there are examples, um, for example, the HeLa cell line many people have heard of is a cell line derived from one person, Henrietta Lacks, um, which is used in probably thousands, hundreds of thousands of labs around the world. I don't typically work with that cell line, but we have maybe five to ten different cell lines in the lab. And in theory, they were all derived from a single person. Cool. Uh, do you, what do you do like actually experimentally what do, yeah. <laughs> in the cell. So I um, I really originally fell in love with, with microscopes and imaging. So what I can do is actually add a fluorescent tag to mTERC1, to this molecule, and actually look um, with a microscope within the cell and watch the molecule move around in time. So... I really enjoy I really enjoy that stuff, like getting to look at cells and, and watch these processes happen. And then I also do a lot of biochemistry, which means that I purify the individual protein molecules and I can really understand how the pathway works by purifying the individual components and then putting them back together and seeing if I can recapitulate the behavior that I saw in a living cell. So so the way that we think about it is what you cannot build, you do not understand. So if you really want to understand how a complex signaling network is built, if you can reconstitute it from its pieces, then that's that's a good sign. So I'm not going to say we're all the way there yet, but I've, we've learned a lot of things by purifying the proteins and, and uh, working with them in test tubes as well. So you get all the pure proteins and then like throw them together in a test tube and <laughs> see what happens? Yeah, it depends. I often use methods like fluorimetry. So I often you know, be actually put my proteins in a, a fancy quartz cuvette. Uh, and then I can measure actually spectroscopic properties of the protein that tell me something about what state it's in. So actually proteins in our body have um, an in- intrinsic fluorescence. And so we can take advantage of that to learn to learn things about their conformation or what state they're in. Okay. Yeah. So every protein is unique because of its the way it shines. Or... Uh, not so much. So um, this is part of why it's important to purify a protein so you have only one. So I would say, okay, all proteins in our body, for example, absorb at 280 nanometers. This is just, you know, kind of a, a property of proteins. So I could monitor this protein signal at A280, um, and I can know that it's due to a particular protein if I only have one protein in the tube. Then there are other things we can do, like add specific tags to proteins of interest so that we then are maybe reading a different wavelength um, and know that it's specific to that one tag. Okay, I see. This is just a reminder that you're tuned into The Graduates. I'm Andrew Sainsing, and I'm speaking with Rosalie Lawrence. So, Rosalie, you actually... Don't spend all your time in the lab, right? <laughs> As yeah. a sci- you're a, you're a scientist, but you like to get out and do some stuff, right? Uh, yeah. You were actually telling me that you like to run in triathlons. Yeah. So I, I've i actually always been a pretty athletic person. Uh, I swam competitively growing up. I swam in college for you know D3 at Swarthmore College. 
And something that has really uh, been fun at Berkeley and has been, I think, a really great way to stay balanced and stay happy during, you know, what can sometimes be a long process of grad school has been um, taking up uh, triathlons. So I actually, like, learned learned to ride a bike with clip and pedals and went all the way from doing my first triathlon to competing with the Cal uh, triathlon team, which is a club team on campus. So that's been super fun. Cool. Have you won any? Um, last year, actually, the the Cal women's triathlon team won the national title. So nice. I got to be contribute to that. That was super fun. That sounds and really cool. It's definitely an experience that I didn't anticipate having in grad school, um, but has really kind of added to the experience. Cool. Wow. Do you just try to do this every day? You like try to exercise just to get out of the lab, like to clear your mind? Yeah, I think it, you know, it kind of ebbs and flows with what's going on in lab. But I would say I'm generally more happy and productive in the lab on the days when I get a swim in or a, a bike ride in, to the extent that my lab mates will comment on it. They're like, oh, you haven't you haven't swam in a while. Like, <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think uh, it's something that I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's great um, in grad school to have some outlet outside of the lab because doing science is, is one of those things that sometimes everything is working and life is awesome. And sometimes you go through three months at a time when none of your experiments work and it may or may not, it's, it's often not any fault of your own. It's just the process of doing science is very arduous and unpredictable sometimes. So it's, it's really nice to have kind of some other outlet to keep you motivated and happy. Nice. So you actually went to school, is that what you're saying, for swimming at Um, Well, I I swam like competitively there, you know, NCAA, but it it was it's division three, which means that it's not scholarship level. So, okay, yeah, but but I swam there. Cool. Yeah, it was awesome. Nice. Uh, Did you know when you went there that you were going to be a scientist? I always really loved biology. I loved hiking or I would say I loved camping as a kid. I actually didn't love hiking. I loved like camping outside with my family and like wandering around and looking at flowers and just always was super fascinated by looking at the world around me. I wouldn't say that I necessarily expected to be a scientist. I think I had a bit of a picture of what being a scientist was like that was very, you know, wearing a lab coat and working in the lab all the time and being like, I don't know, I had sort of a picture of maybe a sort of isolated person before I really kind of got to college and met people who were scientists and started realizing that the life of a scientist is actually pretty awesome. (laughs) Was there like one class or one experience where you're just like, yeah, I'm going to be a scientist? Um, I took a, I took actually a plant biology class in college. I was actually working in plant biology at the time, but I had this one class where my professor designed all the labs in the class to have us essentially take one type of uh, plant or flower and do a ton of different experiments to understand how, for example, the reproductive system of that plant worked to, to sort of like design our own experiments rather than many other kind of lab courses that I had taught had been very sort of cookie cutter, like follow the directions. And so I think really getting to kind of jump in and follow my own curiosity um, and work with a really amazing professor. Got me interested in actually like trying to work in a lab. And then once I had my first experience working in a real research lab, I realized, oh, this is like totally different from 
doing labs in a class and I really like it. Right. So, yeah. Was your first uh, lab experience in plant biology or? Actually, it wasn't. I did my first lab experience uh, the summer after my sophomore year of college. And I remember the summer after my freshman year of college, I had gone home for the summer and worked as a lifeguard. Like that was my summer job. And I came back and realized like a bunch of my friends had gone and done all of this really interesting <laughs> academic research stuff. And I had no idea that this is you know, even a thing that people were doing. Um, and I realized like, oh, you know, I, you know, I like biology. If I maybe want to do this someday, I should figure out what people do in a lab. And so I ended up applying to a ton of different labs. I wasn't really in a position that I could volunteer in a lab, so I wanted to get paid. So I ended up actually working at, in a lab at Carnegie Mellon, studying motor proteins in cells and how cargoes in our cells are moved around. Um, so that was actually a different experience. That was awesome. And then I came back and actually started working for that plant biology professor back at Swarthmore, where I was for college, and worked with him for the rest of my time in college. Nice. How did you end up at Berkeley? Um, well, I actually took a year off after, after undergrad and was abroad. And that project was actually also working in plants. And through those experiences, I realized that I've always been pretty excited about understanding Basically, this question of how do cells in our body make decisions, like I would, you know, I would read textbooks in undergrad and there would be all these pictures of like blobs and coming together and saying, OK, you know, the process of cell division is governed by these these molecules. And it was always a little bit unclear to me, like, how do they how do they actually know, you know, when to turn on, when to do these things? There were, I always felt like there were these kind of deeper questions about how these decisions were made that, that I didn't really understand just by reading um, some of the, the larger summaries. And I realized after actually working in plants for a while that a lot of the kind of cutting-edge work on those kinds of questions were really more in mammalian cells, which is really actually an unfortunate like consequence just of the funding situation. But a lot of the really like awesome cutting-edge microscopy that I was pretty excited about was happening um, in, in more like molecular cell biology departments. So I applied to a bunch of, a bunch of different schools and uh, interviewed at Berkeley and really thought it looked, it seemed like a really amazing place to be both scientifically and as a place to live. So found myself here. And you're uh, thinking about what you're going to do after graduate school, right? Are you you potentially interested in getting back into plants with that? Hmm. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. I'm not particularly, unfortunately, I, I guess I'll make a plug for um, public funding of science. You know, one thing that, that people who are in science are always thinking about are, you know, what are, what are the areas of science where we can get funding to do our work? Um, and the reality is there are certain areas that um, are more recognized by fund, by sort of, uh, government funding than others. So most labs, for example, at UC Berkeley are receiving grant money from uh, the National Science Foundation or the National Institute of Health, which are um, government funding agencies, funds through which are distributed um, actually by Congress, or the budgets are, are partially decided by Congress, and these grants are paid by tax dollars. So one thing to realize is that, you know, these basic processes underlying cancer people are studying are often really studied in labs that are doing basic science. However, often the sort of decisions about what types of research are getting funded are going to be very kind of biased towards fields that have clear disease relevance. 
Um, so unfortunately, plants aren't often thought of as having a lot of disease relevance, even though there's a lot of really awesome and interesting stuff that you can do in plants. So yeah, so I'm, I'm still interested in studying something else relating to cellular decision making. I'm thinking a little bit about maybe going in a neuroscience direction. But at this point, I'm actually very open minded and still thinking about it. I see. Well, you know, plants, agriculture. You could probably... Yeah. Yeah. No, when I was an undergrad, actually, I worked on um, heat stress response in plants and how plants um, can some certain plants can actually adapt and grow in warm climates, uh, which is super important as we're thinking ahead to global warming, for example. So, yeah, I think I think that stuff is all really important. As a graduate student, you've uh, worked with undergrads that come to you much like you went to your plant lab. Um, mm -hmm. How has that experience been from the other side? Oh, yeah. Um, it's awesome. I actually think one of the most fun things is to work with people as they're learning how to do the scientific process um, and mentor them. I feel like I was extremely fortunate to have amazing mentors. I actually went to like a primarily undergraduate institution, so got a lot of attention from the professor. But actually at Berkeley, I've uh, both kind of been involved in teaching uh, you know, teaching undergraduate classes as well as working with undergrads. I had one undergrad student who actually worked with me for three years, so almost her whole time in um, undergrad, and she actually just recently graduated and is now a um, grad student uh, herself, which is very exciting. But yeah, I think getting to really um, kind of share the joy of the scientific process and work with someone over a long period of time so that they, they can really develop their own uh, yeah, their own like, confidence and their own ability to design experiments and actually have original ideas that are better than your own ideas um, is super fun. So I really, really enjoyed that. Cool. Do you try to do mentorship with people that you don't have in your lab? So I have actually been involved in a, a program called the Prison University Project, uh, which is actually teaching in San Quentin Prison. Um, so that's not exact. It's not exactly research, but it is actually uh, a chemistry class that I was involved in teaching, where we actually do have an active lab component. So that's an example of of definitely kind of really kind of getting to share the love of science with people outside of the lab. That I would recommend to anyone if they're interested in in pursuing that. It's a really amazing program, and some of our graduates from that program actually, when they left uh, prison got jobs in labs, um, which is amazing. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's so cool. I actually had another guest who uh, taught Spanish. That's a really um, excellent program, and a lot of grad students at Berkeley are involved in it. Cool. Yeah. So there's that. Uh, I also am involved in some like inter-grad student mentorship stuff. So we have this program in MCB called the MCB Grad Network that's really about uh, providing venues for older grad students to kind of have have a reason to talk with younger grad students and kind of talk to them about the process of going through challenging aspects of grad school, like choosing a lab or taking their qual. So being involved in that has also been fun to try to hope that some of the hard-won knowledge that you have gained could help someone else. And that's been fun as well. We're coming up towards our time limit is there anything that you'd like to say any uh you kind of talked about <laughs> science funding but are there any other things you'd like to uh share with the public or make a mm. plug for 
Um, I guess maybe my only other uh, weird or interesting perspective is is having the perspective of having worked abroad. So I actually did research for a year in Southern Africa and Botswana after undergrad. And really eye-opening experience for me there was realizing the extent to which really amazing science can be done all over the place. And there are awesome scientists all over the place. However, the, the opportunities to do science really vary depending on where you are. And I think something that's really um, valuable is ensuring that there are opportunities for people to do good science all over the place. And part of that actually practice can actually mean making it easier for scientists to cross borders. So many of the people that I actually worked with in Botswana are now, you know, in labs in UK or in the US. And so I think making sure that we continue to have programs to allow scientists to collaborate internationally and make the visa process not too hard. That's something that I think is also very important. Very true. Very true. Thank you so much for being on the show, Rosalie. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Yeah. Tune in in two weeks for the next episode of The Graduates.